Podcastle, episode 383, for September 29, 2015. Abandoned a Responsibility by G. Scott Huggins. Rated PG-13, contains some violence. Hello, it's your friends at Podcastle here to regale you with another tale of adventure and daring do. But just afore the a-daring and the a-doing, a few announcements. Artemis Rising 2, a special month-long event across all three Escape Artists podcasts, will happen early next year, and it will feature stories by some of the best female and non-binary authors in genre fiction. Who can submit anyone who identifies as a woman to whatever degree that they do. Non-binary authors are also welcome and encouraged to submit. Send us your best fantasy fiction between two and 6,000 words and submit through our special Artemis Rising submittable portal. For more information, please visit podcast.org, but hurry, submissions close on September 30. And it's time to get excited for a new venture from escape artists, Mothership Zeta. This is our new e-zine dedicated to fun science fiction, fantasy and horror stories. Issue 1 is out next month, but to whet your appetite, check out Issue 0, a free sampler featuring reprints from Ursula Vernon, Rhonda Eikamp and John Chu, as well as original flash from Andrea G. Stewart and best of 2014 articles from Elizabeth Hand and Bonnie Jo Stufflebean. Go to mothershipzeta.org, download the issue and enjoy. And do come back on October 1. And now on with the show. Climb aboard, me hearties, we're setting sail. Arr, stop me now or I'll be talking like a pirate for the rest of the show. <clears throat> Sorry. Today, Podcastle is proud to present Abandoned Responsibility by G. Scott Huggins. It was first published in the anthology Fantastical Visions 4, edited by William H. Horner and with two fantastic illustrations by Stephanie Puymun Law in 2009. It's still available on Amazon. Scott lives with his wife, three kids and cat in Wichita, Oh, KS, that's probably Kansas. Oh, no Oz jokes, please. Yes, Kansas. Where he makes the history of the world awesome enough that high schoolers pay attention. He has six stories coming out this year in various venues. Of note is his very nearly award-winning story, Phoenix for the Amateur Chef, coming out in November in Sword and Sorceress 30 from MZB Works. It was runner-up for the Bane Adventure Fantasy Award in 2014. You can find Scott on Facebook. Your narrator for this story should be a very familiar voice. We welcome back the inimitable Wilson Fowley. Wilson's been reading stories out loud since the age of four. He's been narrating stories for more people than his own family since late 2008, and has narrated for Podcastle, Escape Pod and Pseudopod, as well as Starship Sofa, Protecting Project Pulp, Crime City Central, Tales to Terrify, and many more. In real life, he's a web developer, but also the director of a community show chorus called The Maple Leaf Singers. Links, as ever, are in the show notes. 
now. Keep a close watch on the skies because one day she might return. In the meantime, enjoy the story. Abandoned Responsibility by G. Scott Huggins Eyes! The muffled shout bounced outside the trance responsibility used when she had to do weaving. The words searched for something to connect to as she moved four fingers in rhythm, over, under, under, over. Then she recognized the voice. The sailcloth fell from her fingers as she rose. I need eyes! The shout was closer now, and the trapdoor in the bottom of her cell rattled and folded up to admit a slim figure in a black cloak. Jad bounded in, his hair, face, and eyes white as clouds beneath his hood. They wavered and fixed on her. Look out starboard, Respy, he gasped, and tell me what you see. She turned to the slit of the starboard window. The ship was turned spinward, and the red-yellow-white spike of the sun glared in her face so that even her slitted eyes needed a moment to adjust. She extended a wingtip backwards for Jade, who took it. She pulled him to her until his hands were on her shoulders. "'Well, what is it?' he asked. "'All I could hear was that some kind of boat was in the water, but no one was saying what. Inconsiderate lot that they are!' That explained the excitement. Meetings on the great ocean were rare, and usually cause for celebration, trading, or fighting. Responsibility picked out the cause of the uproar. There's a boat. Bright yellow. It looks as if it's made of pillows? She had never seen such a boat. It floated like cork, a flea next to the great flattened curve of Achaia's hull. A shape lay on it, a man in blue clothing and red hair hair the color of the sunspike at its base. Pirate. Pirate? She hadn't realized she'd spoken the word aloud, but the shock on Jade's face told her differently. How many? asked Jade. I didn't hear battle stations sounded. Are you sure? Just one, if he is a pirate. I'm not sure, she lied. Let's take a closer look. She pulled him toward the hatch. He came reluctantly, obviously torn between curiosity and fear. Are you sure you want to risk it? If Harad catches us, maybe I'd better just climb down. It might be over by then. Besides, everyone who's on deck is looking over the side. If there's ever a time we can get down and back up without being noticed, it's now, if we're lucky. And it had been long since her last flight, long and too long. Sure, Respy, no one ever notices you. Jad said. Responsibility flushed. We got away with it once. Once, when we both climbed down, at midnight, and old Goff was on watch, who sees about as well as I do. Jad's albinism had blinded him when he was three. The great ocean was not forgiving of differences. But then neither were Akaya's crew particularly. Are you coming or not? she said, a little too sharply, sitting on the rim of the trap-door. For answer, he scrambled down behind her and wrapped his pale legs around her green-scaled ones. Then he threw his arms about her neck. I really hate this part, he muttered. She dropped. They fell free for less than a second before her wings snapped out and the wind nearly tore her bones apart. The pain was glorious. 
twin rivers of fire reaching from wingtips to shoulders to ribs as they dropped, a fast spiral around Achaia's naked mainmast, a hundred feet of freedom from her cell, a converted crow's nest, to the deck. Usually people were waiting for her when she did this, to take her by the wings and escort her back up to the cell for a week of no exercise or visitors, as if anyone but Jad ever came to see her. This time she had judged correctly. Everyone was looking over the side at the pirate. She tried to slow more, to prolong the glide, but Jad's weight on her back dragged at her. Even without him she could not have flown, and the injustice of this still tore at her. As a child she had promised herself that when she was grown she would fly away, like her mother, and never see Achaia again. Bad enough to be a freak, dusted with emerald scales all over, bad enough to have spider-veined wings in place of arms, bad enough to be the only half-human, half-dragon in the whole great disk of the world, but to be so here, and not even to be able to fly away. Oh, she was light enough. Her bones were hollow, or so the ship's doctors had said. She could glide for minutes at a time, but always she sank lower and lower, eventually ending up back on the deck where her mother had set her. The story had been told to her since she understood words, how near the beginning of Achaia's voyage a dragon had appeared and left her. The dragon said she had great need and would hold Achaia responsible for her when she returned. Her mother had left nothing else, no clothing, no secret talisman, not even a name, and so they called her Responsibility, lest any other name displease the dragon. And they kept her in her high cell, lest any harm come to her. They took great pains to see that she stayed healthy. Even Achaia's bulk and arsenal was no match for a dragon. But for now, nearly twenty seconds, she was free. No longer Responsibility, but ours, as the name failed her. Was it a fragmented memory? Or was she just stupid, like Jal down in the cattle decks, whose parents had died when he was two, and who kept prattling on about how his real parents were a pirate king and queen? All things considered, she supposed it would be miraculous if she were sane. She swerved. The deck of the ship shifted, and a cabin slid beneath them. She hit the roof, and hard, dull bars of pain drove up her shins. She and Jad staggered apart. From the top of this deckhouse she could see over the heads of the assembled crew and the other gawkers. As the word spread, more people swarmed out of the hatches to catch a glimpse of the stranger. The crowd was impossibly thick to starboard, and Responsibility wondered if it were possible to capsize a century ship. She thought it unlikely. They were two miles long and nearly a quarter that wide. Each one was cut from the trunk of a single grove tree. But if it did happen, she shuddered at the thought of being lost in a hundred thousand miles of ocean, as this man had been. I can't see much, but they've got him over the side now. They're in the way, but he doesn't look good. He must have been out there a long time. The pillow boat is up, too, but it looks like all the feathers got dumped out of it. He has red hair, but it's too short for a pirate. He's a pirate, all right, said a deep voice behind them. Responsibility jumped and whirled. Jad never moved. Good afternoon, Canna, he said. I thought it was you. 
Nothing ever surprised Jad. This didn't deter Kana in the least. Suppose it had been Harad, the big black man said, his voice rumbling. You'd have your back as red as your eyes, Jad. As for responsibility... She felt her heart sink. No exercise for you for a week, Kana said. Be grateful I don't make it too. No, don't even start. It's not worth my meat ration for a month to be caught helping you. Luckily for you, it's not worth it to me to miss this by escorting your ass back up to your nest. Responsibility felt the strange urge to scream and smile at the same time. More than any other officer on the ship, Kana had been a sort of father figure. Not that he took any special time with her, but he was in favor of ending her imprisonment. A dragon is no fool, he'd said. Her mother knew the risks on a century ship. Let her live. Don't stunt her growth. That might anger the dragon as much as her death. The rest of the officers had overruled him. No one liked having a scaly, deformed sword of dragonfire hanging over their ship, and shutting her up made them able to forget. Still, responsibility felt a sort of respect for the big man. Jad was talking. If you'd been Harad, he snorted, I'd have heard you the second you stepped on the ladder. But you couldn't have been because Harad's over there, he pointed. The blonde, darkly tanned first mate moved through the crowd. Sometimes Jad's sense of direction was eerie. Two sailors held the pirate as he staggered over the remains of his boat. He found his footing and took a long pull from the water flask at his hip. Then he straightened as Harad broke through the semicircle. Ah, Captain, the pirate bowed. His accent was crisp and strange, and the crowd hushed as they strained to listen. I thank you for your hospitality. Harad cut him off with his usual tact. The Captain has better things to do. I'm his son, and we aren't rescuing you, pirate. The stranger's odds would have been better a year ago, with the captain, but he had taken sick, and Harad was just enough of a sailor to see Akaya safely back to the grove, but there was no way for this man to know that. The stranger's face fell. I was afraid of that, he said calmly. I don't suppose you'd believe me if I told you that our, uh, situation has changed. The crowd laughed, Harad loudest of all. It was an oily, ugly sound. But even responsibility felt the laughter well up in her for an instant. Pirates? Change? One might as well ask the sun-spike to move. Ever since the first fleet split, the near islands had been rife with pirates. It did not look good for the pirate alone on a century ship. Alone. She almost felt sympathy, then quashed it. Let him know how it felt before he died. "'Yes, I'm sure this is a change for you,' Harad said, smiling. "'A change for us, too. One we'll enjoy more than you will.' "'The change is greater than you know. There are no more free navies. The consortium has come.' Now the sound that went through the crew was one of fear and anger, anger that this man really was a pirate, only they referred to themselves as the free navies, and the name of the consortium alone was enough to inspire fear.' None of the Akaya's crew had ever encountered the consortium. It was a legend. The consortium were the best swordsmen on the ocean, though they had almost no need of swords. 
They were said to have ships that moved without sails, to know spells that would make their enemies explode. They froze dragons into shapes of metal and rode them, so it was said. Froze dragons! Responsibility felt her own blood chill. Perhaps that was what had happened to her mother. If the near islands had fallen, then the consortium was close, and even if they had done Achaia's crew a great favor by exterminating the pirates, at least pirates were known. But Harad only grinned. You think us fools, eh? Before the stranger could reply, one of the two sailors took a long, curved bundle wrapped in rags from the shapeless mass that had once been a boat. Harad took it and unwound the strips of cloth. Then he gaped. The crowd shrank back. Omnisword, responsibility gasped, and felt Jad stiffen beside her. The weapon's primary blade was a yard long, with a wicked curve near the end. In spite of this, it was double-edged. A secondary blade protruded a foot from the end of the hilt. Even the shearing guard's edge was sharp, double crescents of metal over the two-handed grip. They had never seen one before, but everyone on the ship knew they were looking at the dreaded weapon of the consortium. Your name? Lieutenant Asnai Moshayu, Consortium Navy. I said the consortium had come. He smiled without humor. Consortium, Harad sneered, strode to the middle of the deck, and brought the sword over his head. With one stroke he buried the curved point at the base of the mast. It sank deep, the curve of the blade disappearing within the deck. Harad looked taken aback, but continued. One sword doesn't frighten me. To me you're another lying pirate. To the cage with him! There was another ugly laugh, if a bit less certain, and all eyes looked to the top of the foremast, where two sailors were already beginning their climb. Something that had been a man sat in the tiny cage fixed to the masthead, it was quite dead. Another sailor approached and handed Moshayu the traditional jug of water and loaf of bread. If the sentence of death fazed him, he didn't show it, but simply allowed himself to be led. As he passed beneath their deckhouse, he looked up, and responsibility found herself for the first time with a clear view of his face. It was like looking in the stillest pool. A magic pool, that showed a too perfect copy of her face. It was scaleless and tanned to perfection, subtly heavier, with round eyes that widened in shock as they met her slitted ones. Moshayu stopped so abruptly that his escorts shoved him two steps forward. Recognition. He opened his mouth, and a saber-hilt felled him to the deck, gasping. Harad looked up and saw her, his face flushed dark. Twenty lashes to her!' he pointed. Then get her back above, Mr. Kanna, he shouted, anxiously looking skyward. Satisfying himself that nothing more threatening than clouds hung there, he fingered the rod that hung at his belt. He carried it always, since assuming the power of the captain. Harad's rod was a joke where he could not hear. Responsibility could not laugh. So he likes old recipe, someone sniggered. If consortium women are that ugly, we might all die of fright. There was another wave of laughter. Responsibility did not hear. She simply sat there until Kanna picked her up and carried her to Harad. After Kanna left, 
Her breathing was so ragged and loud that she barely heard the click of the lock as she fought not to sob. The spike shone through her window, faded from the white-yellow-red of its sun aspect to the silver and soft gold of its moon aspect, but her body was alive with brown streaks of fire where the slender rod had hit her. It was amazing what you could do to someone and not actually damage her. A bitter smile played on her face, over her sharp teeth. For all Harad's fury in beating her, he never quite shed the mask of fear. He would never be rid of the doubt that one day Responsibility's mother would return. He looked at her more anxiously now than before. This was the part of the ocean that Akaya had been crossing on its outward voyage when Responsibility had been left on board. No century ship could really stay out for a century. Nineteen years later, Akaya's voyage was almost over. Soon she would be at the grove. Harad's fear was cold comfort. Responsibility had long since given up believing her mother would ever return, but could it be coincidence that this stranger had appeared? Now? With effort, she picked up her tin cup. An easy task for anyone else, difficult for her. Her wings were twice as long as the arms they replaced, and the two ridiculous-looking finger-stubs halfway down each leading edge were almost useless. The bottom of the cup was as clear as a lady's makeup mirror. She saw the same face she had always seen, below hair black as the night sea, fine-cut and freakish, light traceries of scales so fine as to be almost invisible, covering her features. The scales thickened as they ran down her neck and except for the scales, identical to the face of the man also locked in a cage, the one person who had ever looked at her with something besides pity or fear. Two weeks, Arad had said. He'd be dead by the time she could get out again. She lay back and watched the stars twinkle fitfully through the thatched roof, the thatched roof that just barely kept out the rain. She had never wanted to find out how much worse it would be if she punched a hole in it, there was no place she could go when the Akaya was at sea, and no port where anyone would be friendlier than her shipmates. But suddenly she had a place to go, even if it was still on the ship, and she laughed at her folly. The sound was so loud in the tight room that she reflexively stifled it in case anyone else heard. An hour later, balancing unsteadily in the high winds around the crumpled roof on top of her cell, she was no longer laughing. The roof had been stronger than it looked, and her wingtips were raw and bloody. Only her elbow grip on the thick central spire of the mast kept her from being blown off. From here, Akaya was a forest of sails, all taut and billowed by the ship's wind drivers. The real wind pressed feebly against them, blowing, as it always did, toward the spike. Sunspike or moonspike, it made no difference. High above, the kite sails fluttered, anchoring them against it in the high winds. Below, the sea licked its lips, thirsty. The cage dangled within her line of sight, nearly half a mile away. She'd never make it. Her roof was gone. She had no choice. For the first time in years, she lifted up a silent prayer to her mother, wherever she might be. Then, using all her strength, she launched herself into the air. And she was free again. The night wind seemed to sing as it enveloped her, throwing her toward the moon spike. She fought back, angling into the breeze, turning into the blast from the wind drivers. 
She caught one and soared up, up over the starboard mizzen. She was flying. The name welled up unbidden in her, and she almost shouted, Ezra, Izir, but again it would not come clear. Her momentum flagged, and she looked to the bows. She was out of the path of the artificial wind and already far too low. Any minute now, one of the watch would look up and see her. Thermals! The shout pierced the night. It almost sounded like music. Was that him? She looked to the cage. It was the pirate. He was shouting at her, repeating. But what did that strange word mean? He burst into full song. A trained tenor burst through the night, singing the most unlikely lyrics. Thermals, damn it! The kitchens, the kitchens, over the kitchens, over the kitchens there lived a maid, a bright and cheery fairy maid. He looked away and trailed off into nonsense. Shut up, you blasted pirate! a watchman called. The kitchens? Why the kitchens? But her spiral was inexorably descending and could only end with her capture. She wove between the port and starboard mizzens. The smell of fresh bread filled the air around her. Behind her she could hear Asnai remonstrating. But, good sir, I have nothing else to do with my time, and you have already killed me. Asnai's voice rang out mocking from his cage, drawing attention away from her. She swept in over the chimneys, and gasped as a column of hot air rocketed her upwards. She nearly lost control and plunged downward, but her wings held, aching with overuse. She fought to stay in the warm air, tightening her spiral as much as she dared. The ship whirled about her, beneath her. She was frozen in wonder. She was at least twice the height of the mainmast, and the foremast was below her. She knew what to do. She glided down, backed wing, and grabbed onto the bars of the cage as if she'd been doing it all her life. Quickly she clung onto the bars, chest heaving with exertion. You had me worried there a minute, Azria Khan. She nearly fell off the mast. The name reverberated through her like a soft hammer. Azria Khan. Who are you? How do you know me? She was amazed at the steadiness of her own voice. His wolfish grin faded. Then, for the first time, she heard uncertainty in his voice. Don't you know? Despite the risk, she leaned back and peeked downwards. No, what? Was that pity in his face? No, you really don't. All this time I thought you must... And it's obvious you recognized me, so... I recognized me, she blurted. The grin returned a little. We do favor our father. Responsibility, as Riacom almost plummeted to the deck. What was he saying? I know this is unbelievable to you, but I'm your brother, he said, watching her face. My half-brother? Gods, I never imagined. Well, it's a long story. We have plenty of time, she found herself saying harshly. Until someone looks up here anyway, and then we don't have any. And I've been waiting for twenty years for this story, so make it good. She bared her sharp teeth. At that moment she imagined herself capable of biting through the iron of the cage. Her four knuckles whitened on the bars, but she never thought about letting go. 
You haven't foreseen a damn thing, have you? In fact, you've barely flown until tonight. You didn't even know how to use thermal columns for lift. Oh, Shalim, he said softly, what have we done? Stop talking to yourself and start talking to me, she whispered fiercely, or I'll kill you right now. Considering that your lack of knowledge almost certainly means you haven't brought a key with you, I might be wise to take you up on that offer, given the alternative. His eyes were empty, and responsibility knew it was beyond her power to make him say anything. He was, after all, already dead. In two days he would be screaming for death, until thirst closed his throat forever, until exhaustion robbed his limbs of strength, and the gulls began to— She closed her eyes against the vision but he merely sighed, and his courage seemed to return. You deserve more of us. Where to begin? Our family rules Halsket, one of what you call the Near Islands. She gaped at him. No, quite literally, our family. It's a twin throne, dragon and human. The intermarriage helps keep the kingdom together. Every ruler has two, at least two, consorts, one dragon and one human. The purebred children, like me, maintain the succession. The half-breeds are counsellors, mediators, wizards. Dragons foresee, humans invent. Half-breeds usually do some of both. Responsibility's head whirled. Half-breeds? More like her? She was the only one, wasn't she? But the stranger, her brother, was continuing. When the consortium attacked— father was taken by surprise in one of his border towns, and Shalim, your mother, fled with you. And she just left me here. A lifetime of anger was building, a solid mass behind responsibility's eyes and lodged in her throat. She didn't have a choice. Asnai's eyes met her own, unblinking. The consortium has their own style of magic. They're almost all human, and they don't like half-breeds. Everyone in the Twin Kingdoms thought that the half-breeds would be slaughtered if the Consortium won, and your mother had foreseen that you and I would meet at sea. She must have thought that we'd be the last two of our line. No one knew then how overextended the Consortium was, nor that we could possibly ally with them, no matter how shakily. She could have kept me with her. You could have come looking. Well, damn it, what do you think I was doing? Responsibility jerked back from the fierce anger in his voice. You mean, you came here expecting to find me? The thought was too horrible, too big. She had never thought to be looked for, never watched over, except in the hopeless little girl fantasies of every orphan. But the fantasy was true, and now it would truly die. I can't think of any place I would have expected to find you less, he laughed grimly. I certainly never thought Shalim would have put you on a century ship— I suppose she thought I could get you off one fairly easily. We pirates do have a reputation. But it's certainly the last place anyone would look. Everyone knew Shalim's foreseeing. She never came back, and so, when I was of age, I took a place in the consortium navy. Father loved Shalim very much. And you expected me to know all this? Some. Enough that you'd be expecting me. All half-dragons can foresee to some extent. I guess that answers the question as to whether foreseeing is instinctive or learned. <sighs> he sighed and touched his hands to her fingers. 
I can't believe I've found you, Azriacam. I mean, I always knew, but it's rather like coming face to face with a minor legend. Responsibility was too startled to laugh. Then Asnai's face fell. Unfortunately, I rather thought that your mother or you would take it from here, or that I'd actually have a ship of my own as opposed to being shipwrecked. I suppose it's only a matter of time before someone spots us and puts you back in your cell. Or puts you both in your cell, you idiots, a low voice whispered below them. You know what the penalty is for helping someone in the cage? Responsibility nearly jumped out of her skin. Jad! How dare he interrupt? No, wait. His very sensible concerns began to penetrate her fog. Who else? Now, let's get out of here before we're all three forced to share that thing. It was too much to handle at once, and she found herself focusing on the obvious. How did you get up here? Rule number one. Being blind is almost as good as being invisible. No one ever suspects you of anything except idiocy. Seeing as I spend a good deal of time with you, Madame Azriacam, I suppose I can't blame them. The name sounded strange from Jade, but there was no time to comment. This is my brother, Jade. I'm not leaving yet. I don't care if they do put me up here with him. Yeah, yeah, so I heard. Who's asking you to leave him? Pass this up. A key jangled. Asnai reached down for it. More pleased than you know to meet you, Jade. Azriacam, your friend is smarter than either of us. The cage flew open. Now, how do we get past the guard? Jade huffed impatiently. What guard? Why guard you? No one likes you, so who'd risk helping you? The watchmen look out, not in, unless you attract their attention. Let's go. The climb down seemed the longest in Responsibility's life, but they finally touched deck and shrank into a doorway. Now what? Now we go fetch your brother's boat and— Asnai put a hand on Jad's shoulder. He started to shake it off, then stopped. What? That boat was punctured by your helpful crew. Besides, even consortium lifeboats just float. We'd be picked up at dawn. An awful silence drifted over the three of them. Jad's brash demeanor had evaporated. But I thought you— He looked ready to cry. Wait, where are the lifeboats? Asnai asked. All along the hull, port and starboard, Responsibility said. But only the big ones have sails. Any we could lower would only have oars. That's all right. Can we get a wind driver? Jad started to laugh hysterically. <laughs> Nothing's fastened down firmer than a wind driver, you moron. You'd need a day with all kinds of tools. I know. I've heard them complaining about changing them. Besides, she just told you they don't have sails. Trust me, Jad. If they change them, are there spares? Jad's breathing eased. Yes. Can you get me one? I suppose. They aren't big. Good. Go. Azriakam and I will get the boat ready. Jad disappeared into the night. You're just giving him false hope, Responsibility said. There are watchmen all along the edge of the deck. Actually, I have an idea about that. The sailor on duty yelled and jumped a foot when she fluttered down right next to him. Instantly, shouts of query raced along the decks of the Akaya, and the two nearest sailors came running. Okay, the first man shouted. Just responsibility. Then he turned on her as the other two came up. What are you doing out of your cage, little bird? He said with a nasty grin. I thought you were locked up, 
said another. Wouldn't want to anger Mommy now, would we? Responsibility remembered every contemptuous glare she had ever received and channeled it at the sailor. My mother is already greatly displeased. She spread her arms wide, her wings. They stared. And she hears you. Was it a twitch, or did one of them look nervously skyward? She thought she had used such threats far too often as a little girl for them to be really effective, but they were now in the same seas where her mother had first appeared. Yeah, right, the first man said. Then something large dropped down almost on top of them. The sailor and his companion froze, cowering. Responsibility flattened and rolled out of the way. Asnai stood over her, omnisword already whistling through the first sailor's neck. The man at his back drew his saber and gurgled in agony as Asnai lunged backwards, piercing his chest with the shorter blade. The third man had his sword out to parry and looked very surprised when Asnai reversed his swing and brought the pommel blade around to crush his skull as if with a battle-axe. The three had made no sound. Around the curve of the hull there were no shouts of alarm, and there was a hole three sailors wide in Akaya's port watch. After lowering the boat, Responsibility and Asnai made their way back to the mainmast. He's not here, Asnai said. Yes, he is. He's just about as good at not being seen as he is at not seeing. Asnai still jumped when Jad dropped between them from the lower spar. Nice to see you still have faith in me, O oh highly connected one, he said, bowing to Responsibility. I don't know what you'll do with this and no sail. He took the wind-driver from between two large boxes where it had lain concealed and gave it to Asnai, a bulky construction of polished wood and stone covered in arcane symbols. Asnai looked it over, then rammed the hilt-blade of the omnisword down into a pair of runes. They shattered, leaving empty holes where they had been inlaid. And so much for the reaction-damping spell. Just like old free navy days, he grinned. Jad, remind me to acquaint you with the laws of motion some time. Benefits of a consortium education. Now see if you can scare up some food and water. Then join me. Five minutes. No more. He was gone. They almost made it. They were halfway across the open deck when the shout went up. Borders! Responsibility and Jad froze, not needing to speak. The guard had changed. They dropped the supplies. Jad hesitated. It's open ground, Jad! Run! They ran. The cries echoed around them. Borders! Port side amidships! Borders! Borders! The deck began to ring with the soft thunder of men running. Pounding feet fell behind them. From the corner of her eye, Responsibility saw another sailor turn in pursuit. And then there were figures in front of them. Two. Four. A dozen. They stopped ten feet from the side. All eyes were fixed on them, and on the three dead bodies they hadn't had time to hide. The circle closed in. "'Stop!' she cried, spreading her wings out to their full extent. The sailors hesitated, sabers drawn. In the dim light they had not recognized her. "'Responsibility! You!' Canna stepped forward from his place at the edge of the deck. "'I'd never have believed!' His voice hardened. Why? The disappointment in the big man's voice hurt more than she thought it ever could, but before she answered, Harad stepped up beside him. 
because she's a pirate-loving traitor. All eyes looked toward the foremast, though it was out of sight. Yes, he's gone, Harad shouted, and here are his accomplices. The only question is, where is he? He stepped forward, menacing. Responsibility willed herself not to look over the side. You do not dare hurt me, she called, so everyone would hear. My mother will take a terrible vengeance on this ship if I am harmed. A murmur of unease drifted through the sailors, but Harad's voice was steady and dead. If your mother had wanted you unharmed, she would have been back long ago. Are you certain of that? she said, forcing herself to step forward and meet his eyes. How certain are you? He blinked. Do you see my face? Do you remember the pirates? My mother foresaw that my brother and I would meet here. My mother foresaw this moment. Perhaps she is planning a family reunion. Harad stepped back. He had seen the resemblance. The sailors murmured. Still, Harad hadn't taken his eyes off her. She couldn't keep this up much longer. What was Asnai doing? Perhaps she was testing you. Perhaps she is testing me. Perhaps... The wind driver started up with a booming roar. Mother, you have come for your daughter at last! They couldn't help it. Every eye shot fearfully to the sky. No one was watching her. As responsibility, she had never offered violence to anyone. She had never dared. Azriakam lashed out. Her wings had twice the reach of a man's arms. Her left wing buried its horny tip in Harad's throat. Her right cut into Kana's thigh, and she winced with the big man as he fell, breathing a silent apology. Jad, on my back! The slight figure crashed into her and held on. She let the momentum carry her past the two bleeding men. Then she was over the side and falling, falling toward Asnai's waiting boat. By the time anyone thought to call for bows, they were well out of range, Ekaya dwindling in the distance, the wind-driver's magical jet kicking up water behind them. "'No supplies, eh?' Asnai deadpanned. "'It's going to be a long, dry voyage home.' The moonspike was beginning to lighten, turning its colors to that of the sun. Asnai steered them toward it. "'Home?' Azriakam said, as she watched Ekaya vanish astern. The end of her captivity had come. She had gotten, in a way, the vengeance she had always wanted. The end of the world had come. She had never thought beyond that. Somehow she had assumed that everything would simply... stop. She hoped Kana was all right. Home? she said again. Where is it? Jad took her shoulders in his hands. Home is where it's always been, he said softly. It's just that we've never been there. Azriakam felt herself nodding. Somehow it would be enough. And welcome back. Gonna love a stirring story of the sea. And for me there's a lot to like here. Yes, it's a great sea story, but I'd love to know more about this world. The dragons, the half-breeds, the consortium, the century ships. And what happens next? Do they make it back? Hmm. I wonder if there's other stories in this world. But what did you think? 
do come and join the conversation at forum.escapeartists.net and let us know. Now let's take a look at what folks said about episode 373, Sweet Potato Woman by Chris Barnes, which was read by yours truly. Comments on this one were a bit muted. Folks liked it well enough, but felt it wasn't very... mm, challenging? Anthony said, This story did a great job of blending creepy with tender. Not an easy thing to do. We listened to it as a family. The kids loved it. And Eight Hands said, So, this was a sweet, gentle story about grief and moving on. It was also a story that featured a sweet potato with a face. I have a mild phobia of plants with human features. The imagery of a sweet potato woman didn't fail to terrify me every time she was mentioned. So for me, this story caused a massive cognitive dissonance, bouncing back and forth between very different reactions. Not the author's fault at all, of course, but it sure was a really weird listen for me. And naturally, this triggered a round of pictures of odd-looking sweet potatoes, even one called Jabba the Hartato. Hmm. Come see for yourself over at the forums. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, including our fantastic slushers Khalida Muhammad Ali, Arun Dewa, Jen Albert and Sarah Goldman, thanks for stopping by and sharing with us in listening to this story. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is your host, Graham Dunlop, reminding you that dragons foresee, humans invent, half-breeds usually do some of both. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Inc. It's released under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license. Share it all you like, but don't change or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva and Exile. To find out more about them, go to shiva-in-exile.de We could not continue without the generosity of our donors. If you donate, thank you so very much. It's with your fantasticness that we pay our server costs and our authors. If you don't, you can subscribe from as little as $2 a month. Regular donations help immensely. Or try a one-time donation. Either way, you can donate at the Podcastle website. Go to podcastle.org and find the Support Us section down the right-hand side. And if you can't donate, we completely understand... You can also help by telling others about us. Write about us on your blog, mention us on Facebook, or say something about us on Twitter. Leave us a five-star review in iTunes. All of that helps immensely. Thank you. How can I pass up a Terry Pratchett quote taken from The Colour of Magic? Some pirates achieved immortality by great deeds of cruelty or daring do. Some achieved immortality by amassing great wealth. But the captain had long ago decided that he would, on the whole, prefer to achieve immortality by not dying.